Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, a podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm Fred Dews. Today's show features a discussion with one of the co-authors of a new research paper on sextortion, a new term for a new crime. Then meet a new scholar in the Centennial Scholar Initiative who works on 21st century governance. And finally, the pros and cons of Brexit, the referendum in the UK about whether or not to leave the European Union. My guest today is Benjamin Wittes, Senior Fellow in Governance Studies and Editor-in-Chief of The Lawfare Blog. He is co-author, along with Cody Poplin, Quinta Jurassic, and Clara Spera of Two New Things, a new paper titled Sextortion, Cybersecurity, Teenagers, and Remote Sexual Assault, as well as a legislative proposal to close the sextortion sentencing gap. We'll talk about both in this episode. Ben, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks. Um, You were the very first guest on this podcast back in 2013, so it's good to have you back on. And it's been great watching you guys grow since since then. Thank you very much. And I know you have a lot of podcasts over on the Lawfare blog, at least four that I've seen. Yeah, we've we've got a bunch. Okay, so I encourage listeners to go check out your podcasts. All right, let's talk about these papers and the legislative proposal. First of all, what is this thing we're calling sextortion? Well, so sextortion is a term that prosecutors use to refer to extorted sex, and particularly sextorted sex online. That is, somebody threatens somebody online if the person does not generally produce pornography or do a live Skype uh, video of a you know, sexually explicit nature. Uh, you know, it sounds like a weird corner of the internet, and it actually it is, but it's a, a really growing sex crime online. And uh, so this is, uh, I think, the first major study of sextortion that anyone's ever done. And we found an alarming number of these cases. I mean, sort of n- nearly 80 prosecuted at the federal level, the state level, and internationally and accounting for an amazing number of victims. So it's a form of blackmail, but it's not necessarily to get money. No, in fact, we excluded cases in which the goal was to get money. So if you have nude pictures of somebody and you threaten to release those pictures of her unless she pays you, that's a big problem online. That stuff is going on all the time. And uh, some people call that sextortion. We do not. We call a crime sextortion if and only if the thing being requested uh, or demanded or extorted is itself uh, nudity or sexual activity. And and who are the victims? So the victims, well, let's start with the perps because that's a simpler question. The perps are all men. A hundred percent of the perpetrators we're dealing with here are uh, male. The victims are a more interesting melange. Um, they're, uh, so first of all, nearly all or all of the adult victims are female. But the overwhelming majority of sextortion victims are children, uh, and some of them quite young children. And the picture uh, of the child victims is a more complicated one. There's a, a you know, I think 27% of the cases that we looked at involved uh, juvenile boys as victims. And so, uh, you know, there it is predominantly a problem of predation against uh, women and girls, but there is a substantial subset of it that's focused on, on young boys as well. 
And you found this uh, crime to be committed uh, nationwide, but also globally. Some of the perpetrators are overseas. right. So one, so there are a number of interesting things about sextortion. If you can step out of your revulsion at it for a moment and just analyze it analytically, uh, one is that this is the first time in human history that you can sexually assault somebody who isn't in the same room as you. Uh, the second is that it follows from that that you can sexually assault somebody who isn't in the same state as you. And the third is that you can sexually assault somebody who isn't in the same country as you. And so a remarkable number of these cases cross state lines, people uh, preying on people who are far away, sometimes many different states are implicated. Uh, and a, an amazing number of the cases actually cross international borders too. And we have sextortionists who have victims in, in you know, quite a number of different countries as well as quite a number of different states. Your study has a number of case studies in it. Yes. And uh, I'll just tell listeners they're all very disturbing and upsetting. The victims of this crime, it really is like they have been physically sexually assaulted by somebody. But it might even be worse because the perpetrator is kind of out there in cyberspace. Right. So I don't, you know, I don't want to say it's worse. Right. I mean, I, you know, I don't, I don't want to, you know, say what is a better or worse sex crime. What I will say is that this is not, you know, innocent, playful sexting. You know, which is a subject that the media is obsessed with, but. That's not what this is. This is a form of sexual slavery that people are subjecting other people to in remarkably large numbers. Uh, it often goes on for long periods of time. Uh, it sometimes does jump into the physical world, as in people demand me physical meetings and the performance of you know actual sex in person. That's relatively uncommon, but it does happen. But it also involves uh, serial ongoing sexual violation by uh, a perpetrator often unknown to you as the victim uh, over long periods of time. And the impact on victims uh, is very substantial. The other thing that is, again, getting into the weird element of this that, you know, sex, this is the first time that sexual assault has been scalable in the Silicon Valley sense of the word, you know. So if you think about your garden variety, mo most sexual predators are serial repeat players. They, you know, it's, a, it's an area of crime with very, very high recidivism. Um, somebody generally doesn't commit one rape. But on the other hand, there is... Traditionally, a, 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 in, in the physical world, there's a limiting factor that limits the number of people you can assault, and that's that it's time-consuming. You know, in order to, to sexually assault somebody, you need to uh, identify that victim, get that victim in a location that is solitary. Um, it takes a certain amount of time. Um, and so historically, when you see serial rapists, you're dealing with people, even the high-end serial rapists, are dealing with people who have dozens of victims, right? And, and we consider that really horrible, you know, sexual assault. So the sextortionists uh, have automated this. 
And like everything else online, you can automate these attacks. The result is uh, it's much less time-consuming. And people's security procedures in the physical world are dramatically better than their security protocols in the online world. So the victims are uh, relatively easy prey. And the result is that some of the extortionists are amazingly prolific. So we have two cases that in our study sample where the Justice Department estimated that there were hundreds, if not thousands, of victims. That's a quote from, from the court papers in those cases. Uh, we have a, a lot of cases in which there are more than 100 victims. And we have a number of cases, it's, it's, and it's entirely routine in sextortion cases for the prosecutors to identify dozens of victims or you know, to, to say that there were dozens of victims. So I think one of the things that, that people don't understand about this is that this is not a point-to-point, -point, you know, one predator equals one victim situation. This is a situation where we've identified 78 cases and the low-end estimate of the number of positively identified victims in those cases is nearly 1,400. And the low-end estimate of the actual number of victims is 3,000. It may be as high as 6,500 or so. But these are these are cases that are producing, you know, mass-scale victimization of large numbers of both adults and children. Well, you just said that victims are relatively easy prey due to the uh, less intensive procedures for, for security. Does that explain perhaps why children are even more vulnerable to this kind of sex crime? Well, so... So one way to think of it is as a sex crime, right? Another way to think of it is as a cybersecurity problem. And why does this crime happen? Well, this crime happens for one of three reasons. Either uh, in, in the low-end, less sophisticated version, because somebody tricks somebody in a social media setting, pretends to be their boyfriend, pretends to be uh, somebody who's flirting with them, and they exchange a some nude pictures. And then once you have that first nude picture, you then extort the production of more. You reveal, A, that you're not who they thought you were, and B, that you want more or else. Uh, the second modality is that you hack somebody's accounts. Now, like, adults don't like to hear this, but teenagers nowadays take nude pictures of themselves and they send them to each other. And, uh, you know, I don't want to get into the propriety of that or whether that's an okay thing or a bad thing or whatever. But it is, uh, uh, from, a, from a cyber analysis point of view, it, it's a risk factor, right? If, if you break into somebody's Dropbox and expect to find a bunch of nude pictures of the person, that's an incentive to go to try to get into that uh, Dropbox account. And by the way, Teenagers do not use strong passwords. So, so this is a very soft set of targets for a relatively high-value set of outcomes. The third thing that people do is, and this is the higher-end version of the attack, is they hack webcams and they steal the images of uh, the victims surreptitiously. Now, in this situation, the victim has really done nothing more than left a laptop computer open in a bedroom. 
But, you know, using remote access hacks on computers is relatively easy to do. And, um, and so where have we seen this pattern of behavior before, wherein you're tricking people into clicking on links, you're stealing passwords, and you're hacking their computers? Well, we see it in every cybersecurity vulnerability there is. When we think of cybersecurity, we think of big corporations as victims. We think of oh, maybe institutions like the Brookings Institution. We think of uh, government agencies like the Office of Management and Budget. We think of companies that have significant intellectual property. And we think of, you know, wealthy adults with uh, resources and financial uh, stuff that you might want to steal or get access to. I, that's the classic identity theft. We don't think of teenagers and we don't think of teenagers because from a classic point of view, they don't have intellectual property worth stealing. They don't generally have, you know, great financial resources at their disposal. And uh, we think they don't have data that's worth stealing. And they don't have identities worth stealing. And these last two points turn out to be entirely wrong. They do have data worth stealing or with worth coercing, which is the sexual images they either have produced or can produce. And you can steal the former and coerce the latter. So they're actually very attractive cybersecurity targets to the right kind of person. They also have identities worth stealing because their friends are targets too. And if you get a, a text message from you know, your best buddy as a 15-year-old that says, hey, check out this link, you're really likely to click on that. And so, you know, one of the lessons of this whole thing is that teenager cybersecurity hygiene actually matters a great deal. It just matters a great deal to protect values and goods that the cybersecurity community has not traditionally focused on. Let's take a coffee break to hear from Elena Harkness, a new fellow with the Centennial Scholar Initiative at Brookings. My name is Elena Harkness, and I'm a fellow in the Office of the Centennial Scholar, where I work on the project on 21st century city governance. I grew up in the Chicago region, first in a south side neighborhood called Marquette Park, and then in a south suburb, Park Forest, which is about a 40-minute drive from the heart of downtown, but is actually like really the southern boundary of the suburbs. So my house backed up to a large forest preserve. There were farms just a few minutes away. And I think this experience of growing up in and around a major metropolis, but also kind of at the edge of, well, the Great Lakes, this massive network of rivers, prairie turned farmland, exploring the region and the intersection of the city and the landscape around it, I think all of this had an impact on my future career choice for sure. I've always been captivated by cities, their complexity, their diversity, their energy, but in particular, this relationship between cities and the environment around them. Cities are, I guess probably my biggest inspiration to become a scholar. I've always been so curious about them, and I've always enjoyed asking questions and finding answers in general. So research and scholarship in some ways have always been a part of my life in different ways. Addressing poverty and creating opportunity, in addition to this goal of preserving the environment, have been my top-line motivators, and I've also been really interested to find out more about how these things intersect, frequently in cities, but almost always with some dimension of you know, institutions, people, money, and politics coming together. 
So I spent the first decade of my postgraduate career in philanthropy, not academia. This was a little bit by accident. I wanted to work on public housing in Chicago. That was the issue that was really motivating me. And I ended up landing a postgraduate internship at the Chicago Community Trust. And there I got to help launch and manage a fund that supported the people in neighborhoods that were impacted by Chicago's plan for transformation. From there, I moved on to a broader urban development and policy portfolio at the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, which was great because it showed me that philanthropy is so much like research, 90% about developing the right problem framing first before you start looking for solutions. I think understanding how cities work or don't to create opportunity for their residents is the single most important issue we're facing today. It has a lot to do with figuring out how to mitigate the footprint that humans have on the planet as well, uh, and getting it right couldn't be more important. I think research is catching up to what people have instinctively known for millennia, that place matters, location, location, location matters. The way that cities work or don't for people This is, in some ways, a choice. It's an institutional design question. It's a choice of the kinds of policies that we put in place. It's a planning question. And it's actually, it's the intersection of all of those things. Specific projects I'm working on right now include the project on 21st century city governance, which is a collaboration with our global program. It's these same institutional network questions that have been driving me for a long time. And it's really interesting to be able to look at this issue with our global colleagues who have um, such a great comparative perspective to bring. So my book recommendation for our podcast listeners is my current read, Cadillac Desert, The American West and Its Disappearing Water by Mark Reisner. This book was written 30 years ago, but it is so relevant today. It's one of the best accounts of how our built and natural environments are interconnected systems that we're just beginning to understand. And water governance is going to be, it is already one of the defining policy issues of our time. The consequences of the policy choices that we made 30 or 60 years ago to manage and price this most precious resource are still unfolding today. That's one of the best parts about reading the book. You can kind of jump forward and see how something played out. Cadillac Desert is really the story of the exploration and settlement of the American West, which was made possible through the essential but very unnatural act of irrigation and all the institutions that grew up around the management of water. The bureaucracy, the legal frameworks, the policies, incentives, the subsidies— that set the stage for unsustainable growth and settlement and industry. This book honestly reads like a movie. It starts like The Revenant. It ends like The Big Short. It's definitely worth a read, and maybe it will be a movie someday. And now back to the discussion with Ben Wittes. So the sextortion cases are being tried under existing statutes, uh, like child pornography and uh, blackmail laws. And they're being tried, as you said, at the federal and the state level. So I know you're recommending... Um, a new kind of law for this. Why, why are you recommending a new law? Well, so there's, there's basically three problems with current law for sextortion cases. First of all, sextortion in and of itself is not a crime. Um, you know, there's, it's, the word is a kind of slang that the prosecutors use to refer to a class of offenses that aren't themselves, you know, that, in a, that are always charged as something else. So normally they're charged as child pornography. Now, that only works if you have a child victim. When it works, it's, it's a very effective response because the child pornography statutes are, have really, really strong criminal penalties associated with, with them. However, a fair number of these cases involve adult victims. And actually, some of the worst cases involve a lot of adult victims. And the problem arises when there are no child victims to implicate those child pornography statutes, 
what offense is it to demand that somebody produce uh, pornography for you or you'll release compromising photos of her that you may have stolen from her webcam? Well, it's extortion. And extortion of that variety has a maximum two-year penalty associated with it at the federal level. It is a potentially computer, a violation of the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act if you hacked the person to do it. Uh, that has uh, also a very limited set of penalties associated with it, not as low as the sex extortion penalties, but they're not, they're not like the child porn uh, offenses either. And then finally, there are cases that can be an identity theft. There can be stalking involved. Uh, uh, but these are, again, uh, offenses that have dramatically lower sentencing associated with them. And so the result is you get these cases that involve mostly adult victims where you uh, are not able to develop sentences that are remotely consistent either with the number of victims the person has, uh, uh, has injured or the magnitude of the harm that he may have done. So there's a dramatic sentencing gap between adult victim cases and child victim cases. And then there's a second gap that's really significant, which is the gap between the sentences achieved in federal court and the sentences achieved in state courts. Uh, even when you have child victims, um, in state court, you are going to get much, much lower sentences because state laws are generally just much less strong than federal law, even on the child pornography side. And so there are these cases. Uh, there was one we looked at in Rhode Island, which involved, uh, you know, really bad victimization of 22 boys. Um, and the total time the perpetrator got, I believe, was about a year in prison. And so there's a there's a state level problem here that a lot of state legislators are going to need to look at. And then finally, there is a big gap between what sextortionists are getting and what physical assault perpetrators are getting, uh, even at the federal level, if you're dealing with adults. And I think that's that's a very interesting question. You know, should there be sentencing parity? Should uh, it goes back to your question? Is it worse, better, or less bad. or um, But I think at the very least, there shouldn't be the sort of dramatic disparity that we're seeing now. And so our proposals are, our main legislative proposal is designed to create a federal sextortion statute that has a real sentencing power attached to it. And you, you describe that in great detail in the legislative proposal that accompanies the study. In fact, it's actually almost like you've kind of written the yeah, clauses kind of, of the law. Yeah, no, we actually drafted a model statute. Okay. What are some of the other features of the model statute? Well, so the key thing from my point of view is that the, that, that the statute has to criminalize two distinct things. One is the issuance of a threat in order to coerce the production of pornographic material. That is the act of saying to somebody, I have this image of you and I will release it if you do not create more images or uh, video for me. That is, should be itself a crime, whether or not that uh, threat is complied with. The second is, and, and this is uh, you know, I think a separate crime, 
is the production of pornography by means of such a threat. That is, generally speaking, you know, if you're dealing with adults, the production of pornography is a constitutionally protected activity. It's, it's a form of speech. And I'm not by any means an anti-porn crusader. That said, if the person who's making the porn is not consenting, uh, it seems to me to be no different from any other sexual activity involving somebody who is not consenting, which is to say it's some form of sexual violation and it should be a crime. Therefore, I believe, and we argue in this paper, that if you have produced, distributed, released pornography by means of a threat, that itself should be a criminal act. We're arguing in the paper that, A, that states should adopt similar laws, but that the key thing is for the federal prosecutor to have such a law at his disposal or her disposal. Most of these cases are prosecuted at the federal level because of the interstate nature of a lot of the crimes, because of the forensic difficulty of investigating some of the these some of these offenses online activity is just stuff the FBI is is generally more adept at investigating than a lot of local police departments and so we found rather to our surprise actually that the overwhelming majority of these cases are actually federal cases already and so for me the biggest bang for the buck it comes from federal statutory reform and are you suggesting harsher sentences for those convicted of sextortion crimes? So right now, because there is no such thing as a sextortion crime, the sentences are going to vary just outrageously, and they do. So on the one hand, people get child pornography sentences that can be, you know, mean the rest of their life in prison. On the other hand, you get people who have many, many, many victims uh, who will get you know, between three and five or seven years because they're charged as uh, extortionists or, um, or, you know, computer hackers. And so the first point is that there should be a statute that defines the presumptive uh, sentencing range for this crime. My view is that sextorting somebody is a a pretty wide, like the degree of culpability that a perp may have for a sextortion can vary a lot. Uh, the, the child pornography laws basically put a 15-year mandatory minimum on, on a lot of child pornography offenses. I'm not a believer in mandatory minimum sentences. I am a believer in serious, the potential for serious criminal penalties associated with sex crimes. So what we did in in the model law, and I'm you know any any sentencing range is always arbitrary. We modeled it on the federal sexual abuse statutes, which are the federal uh, the, the federal laws that govern sexual assaults. Now those crimes, unhelpfully, have uh, basically any term. It's basically the judge and the sentencing guidelines can give you whatever they think is appropriate. So there's no range. It's anything from nothing to life. So we thought it should have a little bit more guidance than that. So we capped it at 15 years per count. And um, I think letting sentencing 
the sentencing commission uh, and sentencing practice develop with that in mind. Uh, but to me, there should there were sort of two two key differences between sexual sexual abuse in the physical sense and sextortion. One is that sexual abuse cases can involve serious physical injury. Sextortion almost never will uh, because the perpetrator isn't physically present. Uh, and that did suggest to me that the highest sentencing in the physical abuse department should probably be off the table. But the second is that the sextortion cases can really rack up numbers. And I want prosecutors to have the ability to say, you victimized 50 people and we're going to charge you with every single one of those. And that letting the number of counts rack up a lot of time struck me as a sort of powerful instrument in a form of sexual violence that is in many cases about racking up numbers. Yeah, 50 counts times 15 years is 750 years. Or even 50 counts times five years. You know, if you say, hey, he didn't do anything that terrible to any one of them. But it, you know, it allows, it allows uh, both a, 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 a graduated approach to any individual crime, but also if you if you take each one seriously and you prosecute a large number of them, you can end up developing real time. What happens if, uh, or in the meantime, if a, if a new law doesn't get passed? Are there other kinds of administrative uh, things that, say, the FBI or the Justice Department or state justice departments can do? Well, so first of all, I, I mean, I think one thing that we have to give credit to is that the FBI has brought a lot of these cases, and as has of other federal investigative agencies. They, uh, this is not an area where federal law enforcement has been idle. And, and I think a lot of FBI agents and the FBI institutionally and the Justice Department institutionally uh, deserve a lot of credit for, you know, developing and bringing a lot of the cases that we ended up studying. Uh, that said, there are real gaps in federal practice, and I, you know, two of them are really worth focusing on. The first is that if you looked at the map of sextortion cases, you would think that they that the only places in the world that had sextortion were certain individual districts, and that certain other, including some very high power prosecutorial jurisdictions like the Southern District of New York that were sort of sextortion-free zones. I don't believe that. I think what's actually going on is that certain jurisdictions have prosecutors and agents who care about the issue particularly and have devoted uh, amazing amounts of time to it and other jurisdictions don't. Um, and so I think there's a federal uniformity concern uh, that I suspect we're, we've looked at the very tip of a very large iceberg and that there are certain individual prosecutors who account for a wildly disproportionate share of these cases and it's not because their jurisdictions are particularly egregious in the production of sextortionists. Um, so I would like to see a more 
federal uniformity in taking the problem seriously. But um, the more important issue has to do with data. Um, this Brookings study is the first serious study of sextortion. And the first thing we did when we were started working on it was we called the federal government and asked for data. We called the FBI, we called the Bureau of Justice Statistics, and nobody has data about how prevalent sextortion is. Um, nobody could give us a, a comprehensive list of federal cases. And the reason, of course, is that they count cases according to the statutes under which they're prosecuted, and there is no federal sextortion statute. So the result is that, the, and it's a peculiar result, is that the FBI will issue repeated warnings about sextortion. The Justice Department has a whole project on this subject, and nobody can tell you how many cases there are. So I think one really important thing that, that federal law enforcement could do tomorrow is decide seriously to count the question, you know, like develop data on the subject. And that's, uh, you know, that's an administrative change that should, we should know the scope of the problem that we're talking about. And I'm going to get you to talk about real quick, what technology changes and personal security practices should people, especially parents um, and teenagers, adopt to, um, to be more mindful of this, to avoid this kind of crime? Well, let's start with the single thing that could happen that would be the, the most important, which is that hardware manufacturers should not be producing electronic devices whose webcams uh, don't have thing, masks that you can slip over them. And they should not be producing webcams that are entirely software driven. You should be able to flip a switch on your laptop that turns off your webcam. And most hardware manufacturers don't do that. And I think it's really worth asking the question why. Um, look, on a personal security level, children should not have weak passwords. And children should be using two-step identification in their social media accounts. That sounds like a paranoid, weird thing to say. But uh, the, the reason we let children have weak passwords is that we assume that they have nothing of value to steal. And if you believe that, read this report um, because they actually have a lot of value to steal. And by the way, when we send them out into the physical world, we understand that. You know, we give them all kinds of advice about staying safe in the physical world because they have things of value to steal. And that's just as true in, in, in the virtual world. Look, parents need to understand that their teenagers' sexual mores are different from theirs with respect to certain pictures they may be taking, sending. And I think you have to think of that in the language of the same language that we use to talk about safe sex. You might have to talk about safe sexed. And, uh, you know, that's a values conversation and it's a complicated one. But the cost, I don't know what the right answer to that question is, honestly, but the cost of sending a image of yourself without all your clothes 
uh, should not be for a 15 or 16 or 17-year-old or a 12-year-old a period of sexual slavery to a unknown person in a different state. Um, and I think, you know, we need to have a more serious conversation with kids about cybersecurity and how to how to extricate yourself from situations and not make yourself vulnerable to situations in exactly the same way that we're now having that conversation with the Office of Management and Budget and the Sony Corporation uh, and lots of individuals who fear NSA surveillance. Well, let me ask you, Ben, to, to uh, finish up by focusing on the quote from the paper. You write that there is a civic value in giving a crime a name. Why is that? Look, I mean, it's very hard if you're a victim to come forward and say, I'm being victimized um, at all. It's really hard to come forward and say, I'm being victimized if you can't even put a word to what's happening to you. I think most extortion victims have probably have no idea that they're not the first person in the world this has ever happened to. And I think that's not true of other sexual assault victims. Most people who are raped know they've been raped. I think one of the disciplines of a democratic society confronted by a new crime is the task of naming that crime and the task of deciding how much we care. Naming means not just giving it a name, you know, sextortion, sexual extortion, online sexual extortion, whatever you want to call it. It also means defining it in a, in a rigorous way where it has known elements so that perpetrators know what, crime, what activity is and isn't illegal, so that victims know what is and isn't allowed to be done with them, to them, and so that prosecutors know and investigators know what activity they can and can't take action against. And I think, you know, that task, you know, happens when you have new technologies that allow new forms of interaction. And I guess the big point that we're trying to make in, in this context is that uh, sextortion exists, it is common, it is brutal, and uh, we want people to go through the exercise of figuring out how much we as a society care about it. Well, Ben, I want to thank you for your time today and uh, also especially thank you and your co-authors, Cody Poplin, Quinta Jurassic, and Clara Spera for uh, bringing our attention to this really disturbing phenomenon. Thanks for having me. You can learn more about Ben Wittes and this paper on sextortion and the legislative proposal on our website at brookings.edu. You can also find Lawfare Blog at lawfareblog.com. On June 23rd, voters in the United Kingdom decide whether Britain will remain in the European Union. The Center on the United States and Europe recently co-hosted a discussion of Brexit that featured experts on the implications of the outcome. Here's a flavor of that event with Douglas Alexander of Harvard's Kennedy School and a former UK Shadow Foreign Secretary voicing the stay position, followed by John Longworth, former Director General of the British Chambers of Commerce, making his case for leaving. While the choice is for the United Kingdom, the consequences of the choice that we make on the 23rd of June will be felt far beyond Britain's shores. So in that spirit, let me pick up where Constance left off by trying to give you a sense as to what I regard as the geopolitical significance. Let's start with Europe. 
um, I think it will significantly impact the balance of power within Europe. As a former Europe minister in a previous British government, there has always been a delicate equilibrium between northern liberals and southern protectionists within Europe. My sense is, economically, that balance would tip quite decisively in favour of a more protectionist Europe if Britain were to choose to leave on the 23rd of June. Secondly, I would argue that nationalist forces abroad across Europe at the moment will only be strengthened if we were to see a British vote for exit on the 23rd of June. Look at the words of Marine Le Pen, anticipating with some relish the possibility of British exit in terms of what it would anticipate not just for Greece but also for France and for other Eurosceptics across the continent. But a Europe without Britain would also itself be fundamentally different. It would be smaller. Britain represents about 12.5% of the European population. It would be poorer. The UK represents about 14.8% of the European economy, about 19% of Europe's exports. And it would certainly be less influential on the world stage, Britain holding one of the permanent seats on the Security Council. But I would argue that Europe would not only potentially be poorer, smaller and less influential, there would be a very real risk of contagion. And in that sense, I would simply suggest to you that the view of Europe that many have held since 1989, when George Herbert Walker Bush talked of a Europe whole, free and at peace, genuinely is in peril. My generation is the generation that saw a wall that divided Europe come down. But in 2016, 25 years on, we are seeing razor wire fences going up across Europe once again. So I would suggest that this is a really big deal geopolitically, not just for Britain, but also for Europe and indeed for the West, for America's relationship with Europe. I have oh, I had always held the view uh, that the best place for the UK to be is in a reformed European Union. Uh, but I have also always been a healthy Eurosceptic. And I have to say, one of the things that drove me to the point of making was a risky speech and then resigning from the British Chambers uh, was that actually I came to the conclusion that the European Union is incapable of meaningful reform as I would see it. I mean, they actually have been reforming in their own terms relentlessly for 40 years, relentlessly in the wrong direction, uh, because it is actually a political project, not an economic project, and the truth of the matter is that the UK has never really seen it as such. Um, I'll just say a few words about the broader picture before I go on to my uh, more chosen area, which is the economics and uh, business aspects of the, the decision. First of all, I would say that I've uh, written in the press likening this to a peasant's revolt. Of course, uh, the peasant's revolt, not many of you will know, in the UK took place in medieval times, and what Tyler to his cost, the leader of the revolt found out that the, uh, the establishment are ruthless in pursuit of their own interests. Uh, I think he had his head cut off, actually, uh, while meeting the king. Uh, but actually, in the wider context of uh, the European project, it's more like the Reformation. All across Europe, there's a quiet revolution taking place. We've seen a referendum take place recently in the Netherlands, which voted down a European project. Now, the, Europe is, the Euro, European Union we must always, of course, not conflate the EU with Europe, which is a much bigger and wider uh, continent than the EU, has always ignored the people 
when they actually say, we don't want to uh, move in a particular direction. But it is interesting that we now have the arising of parties in various member states that are d deliberately uh, opposing the European elites. And that's why I actually really uh, am comparing this with the Reformation. Because once again, we have European elites that are interfering by doctrine in the every aspect of the lives of the people of Europe, but are themselves ignoring the democratic process. Europe is a fundamentally undemocratic, corrupt and corrupting organisation. You can get full audio and a transcript of their remarks and those of the other event participants on our website. And that's all for this edition of the Brookings Cafeteria. My thanks to our audio engineer and producer, Zach Colzer, with editing help from Mark Holscher. Plus, thanks to Carissa Nitsche, Bill Fine, and Jessica Pavone, Eric Abala and Rebecca Weiser, Brian Smith, and our intern, Sarah Abdel-Rahim. You can subscribe to the Brookings Cafeteria on iTunes and listen to it in all the usual places. You can send feedback email to bcp at brookings.edu. Until next time, I'm Fred Dews.